Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to have to flee your own country, spend days or weeks in a leaky boat on dangerous rolling seas, and then arrive in a new country where you are terrorised even more? Well, that's the life confronting millions of people in this world who have no choice but to seek asylum. All these people want is a fair go, but here in Australia, our government in our name treats these desperate people with cruelty and inhumanity. Here at 3CR, we aim to give these people a voice, a chance to speak out and let you know that they are just like us, people with hopes and aspirations, people who deserve to be treated as we would expect to be treated if we found ourselves in this position. Refugee Radio is the voice of refugees. It's hard to go on living when your future is denied. Good day and welcome to Refugee Radio on this fine Sunday morning. Um, my name is Celine Yap and I'm going to be your host today. And in the studio with me today, I have a very special guest. I've been looking forward to interviewing him for a very long time. Um, he's a professor at Deakin University and he teaches humanitarian settlement. Um, and his name is Daniel McAvoy. Um, and we'll be speaking to him very shortly after we run through a bit of the news. Um, so the biggest news in... Um, refugee business today is um, the closure of the camps in Calais um, and that's been going on for you know since I think the middle of last week um, and there's all these these really awful stories um, of the the police just burning and clearing and bulldozing um, all the the houses in, in the the refugee camp I mean you wouldn't call them houses they're little shacks I suppose and um, it's so heartbreaking to see that um, these people have tried so hard to build a little life where they could and um, it's just been crushed and broken down by the French government. Um, so this lady called Lara Marlowe um, has written a little article for the Irish Times um, and it's pretty much a little bunch of stories um, of the different refugees staying in there describing what's going on. So I'll read a little bit of that to you. Um, before we go on to a little break. Um, so this is, this is her article. Riot police outnumber the laborers they protect while the orange-coated workmen demolish the jungle in Calais. The police wear transparent, disposable galoshes to protect their black leather boots from the mud that is the migrant camp's most salient feature. While the migrants slept off the exhaustion of another night's fruitless efforts to cross the channel, police and laborers went to work early yesterday on a third day of destruction. First, they finished off the demolition of the Kurdish quarter, tossing clothing, wooden planks and scorched tarpaulins into dumpsters with a claw-like digger. By lunchtime, the laborers had moved on to the Sudanese quarters. A line of grim-faced Africans stood beside me, watching through an icy hailstorm. Last night, the police told me I had to leave, said Mohammed from Darfur. I had to leave my things. I slept with friends last night. If I had known that Europe would be like this, I would not have come here. The destruction was also observed by Elaine Merna, the founder of Cor Cork Calais Refugee Solidarity. Look what the French are doing with our donations, she said bitterly. Volunteers from Britain, Ireland, Germany, Belgium and the Netherlands spent months building the plywood shacks they call shelters, ensuring that each was elevated on concrete blocks to keep them dry. 
Like many of the volunteers, Myrna has found meaning in the jungle. They have a culture we had 40 years ago, living in family groups, she said. If someone passes your door, you invite them in for tea. We in the West are too busy making money. Faint music from the Ethiopian church could be heard over the noise of the digging machines. The acrid smell of burning shacks blended with the scent of baking Afghan bread. No one knows why so many fires have ravaged the camp since the evictions began. Some migrants appear to have burned their own shelters as a form of defiance. Others accuse traffickers or police of setting them. I saw two shelters go up like torches. Faisal, an Afghan refugee, told me he cannot sleep for fear of burning alive. Attention focused on a small group of Iranians perched on the roof of a plywood shack with living place scrawled in black paint on the side. A week ago, a little judge ruled that Ludovic could not be demolished. Aid organizations and migrants say that means housing, not just churches and community centers. Their appeal to the Council of State may be another incentive to complete the destruction quickly. This is my house, an Iranian named Mohammed shouted from the rooftop. I don't want them to destroy it. It's all I have. I don't know where I'll go. We are humans, not animals. The Iranians told me they intended to sew their lips together in, a prote in protest at their situation. A few hours later, they did just that, then demanded to meet a UN representative responsible for refugees. Self-harm is the latest manifestation of the migrants' desperation. The previous day, a Kurdish woman was reported to have slashed her wrists. I kept seeing the, this appalling stuff on the news, said Irish actor Liam Horican, who was doing his fourth volunteer stint in the jungle. I didn't want to be just vaguely aware. I wanted to engage with it. Meba and Gurum, an Eritrean couple, who have been helped by Cork Calais Solidarity, invited us for tea. We removed our mud-caked shoes and half-crawled into the couple's tiny bedroom, the size of a twin mattress. They had nailed blankets onto the plywood walls, and blankets cover the floor. An icon of a Madonna and child and small plush toys, toys were nailed to the walls and ceiling. Rain pattered on the tarpaulin rooftop. Melba sliced fresh ginger to put in the tea and offered us chocolate. The couple told me how they met on Facebook when both work, worked illegally in Turkey but Kurdish gunmen used to raid the refugee camps at night, stealing telephones and money, and shooting at the migrants' knees. On the sea crossing from Turkey to Greece, the couple watched helplessly as a boat carried several dozen Somali, carrying several dozen Somalis sank, drowning its passengers. Meba is four months pregnant, and several weeks have passed since they last made a run for the England-bound lorries. Afghan, Kurdish and Eritrean mafias have monopolies on the parking lots used by the lorries, they tell me. Meba and Gurum are tempted to accept the French offer of a place in the northern jungle, which is to be spared for the time being. But we're scared of being fin fingerprinted, Gurum says. A lot of our friends were fingerprinted in Germany. When they got to England, the British sent them back to Germany. Sultan and Mohammed are first cousins from Afghanistan, and among at least 326 unaccompanied minors living in the jungle. The boys say that they were threatened in both Afghanistan and Pakistan because they are ethnic Hazaras and Shia Muslims. They miss their mothers, who they last saw in a refugee camp in Quetta six months ago. A Briton called Kev gave them a caravan to live in the north jungle. Sultan and Mohammed have the slanted Asian eyes characteristic of the Hazaras. 
Their faces are set and determined. Every morning they try to reach a train bound for England through the tunnel. They once managed to climb three of seven fences before being stopped by security guards, wrapping cloth around the razor barbed wire at the top of the fences. Every evening, Sultan and Mohammed hide in the port on the, in the hope of stowing away on a ferry, but have not gotten closer than 50 meters. We have never known peace and freedom, Mohammed says with longing. No humanity, no peace. I think that exists in England. Um, so that's that's the whole article, actually. I just I just I couldn't stop. In the studio with me today, like I mentioned earlier, we have um, Daniel McAvoy. Um, he was my teacher um, when I was at university. Um, it was all online, so I've never met him, and this is the first day I'm meeting him, and I'm so happy um, that he's he's you know agreed to come in. Um, anyway, uh, he's here to talk about a whole lot of things with us. So um, welcome to the show, and good morning, Daniel. Thank you, Celine. It's an uh, honor to be on the show. Um, so tell us a bit about your background in this field of work. Sure, sure. And, and in case I forget, I should also um, add um, I'm a, a humble, humble lecturer at Deakin oh, University. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> not, not quite a professor yet. You might as well be. Let's, let's face it. <laughs> um, yeah. I, um, I think, well, as, as you know, my experience um, in, in the sort of uh, field of refugee settlement <coughs> is um, from the more official kind of perspective. So it was you know, quite devastating listening to you talking about what's happening in, in Calais over the last week. Um, and it's very hard for me to imagine because um, in the, the settings that I've worked, uh, it's been, you know, sort of official refugee camps. Um, um, so, in fact, my first experience was as a sort of 19-year-old. I, I went travelling um, around the world for eight months and in Thailand I, I stopped and stayed with my former headmaster who was had uh, given up teaching and gone to work in a... Uh, refugee camp in Thailand in the, the um, sort of Cambodian Thai border, um, helping prepare refugees to, to come and settle in Australia. And I was, you know, had the, the chance because he was working there to sort of go inside the camp. And I, I can still sort of remember the images of, of seeing children behind sort of barbed wire and kids who'd never sort of actually been outside of the camps that they were living in. Um, and just a lucky few of those were able to come to Australia. Um, and then a few years later, when I was in my early 20s, I had the chance to work with Care Australia, um, firstly in, in North Iraq um, after the first Gulf War. Um, and that experience set me on the, the sort of path of working in the humanitarian sector and, and international development. Um, then in 99, um, 1999, I worked with Care Australia again, um, responding to the Kosovo refugee crisis um, and I was based in a refugee camp in Macedonia where uh, 45,000 people had sort of settled almost overnight um, and were provided with sort of tents by UNHCR and the, the formal sort of humanitarian um, system. Uh, CARE had the responsibility of managing the refugee camp um, so it had, you know, it was almost like the, a very small or a, a government of a medium-sized country town um, coordinating the other NGOs who were, who were responding to that situation and, and also the UN agencies. Do you um, have a very strong particular memory of that time, being in that, I in think that the, particular camp? The, I mean, a, a lot of um, 
sort of memories from that time, some really great ones. I made sort of very good friends with the Albanian uh, Kosovo uh, refugees who had come from, from Albania. Um, I mean, they, they were, they'd settled in Europe as part of the, you know, sort of the Ottoman Empire um, hundreds of years previously, and there'd always been this sort of sort of conflict, I guess, between... Um, well, most of the time they'd lived in very, you know, great harmony with, with the Christian population in, in sort of... Uh, in, uh, greater Greater Yugoslavia, but as we know, there was you know a breakdown in that during the the nineteen nineties, um, and afterwards I went to stay with some of those um, uh, particularly young guys my own age who had been uh, refugees, but then we had the chance to go back to Pristina and were still working with care in Pristina to sort of you know help people settle back in, um, and I you know had the I guess the I was almost a, a tourist in a sense that I was just I wasn't working for a couple of weeks um, in Pristina while I was sort of observing the international aid system um, roll in and um, while it did a lot of great work there was also some you know aspects that were troubling which was the fact that there wasn't much opportunity for local participation in in the decisions that were getting made about you know the people who were affected um, so that's probably one of the the themes that I took from that experience that I sort of still remember. Um, so as a person who has studied and, you know, worked a lot of your life in, in, in this kind of, like, surrounded by this issue, um, what is your opinion on current migration policy in Australia and around the world? Well, that's, I mean, that's a big question. <laughs> you could just make um, it a, a I'm a, simple I mean, one. Uh, well, I lecture on, on humanitarian settlement um, as one of the, the topics that I teach as part of a, a Master's in Humanitarian Action at Deakin University. Um, I, I do need to clarify that migration policy is not my, you know, area That's of expertise. Okay, but um, um, but more that on doesn't your opinion, I suppose. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, of course, that doesn't. I think everyone's not only entitled, but I think it, it, it's demanded from us that we have an opinion <laughs> about this because, um, you know, we are um, we're all participants in in government policy, whether we are active or not. Um, we all either by being silent or, or by speaking out, you know, either support or uh, protest against, you know, the policies that affect people's lives. Um, the unit that I teach, um, which you, I understand, studied, um, uh, looked at issues related to sort of human, humanitarian settlement of refugees. Um, and we, you know, spend some time in that unit looking at how migration policies evolved in Australia and around the world. And I think, you know, the important thing to note is that it hasn't always been the way it is now. Um, you know, a, a century ago, um, you know, migration policies in most, most states didn't exist and states had much more porous um, and open borders. Um, after the Second World War, um, I think as most people uh, are, are aware, we, you know, that Europe was faced with a, a very large refugee crisis that was, you know, um, or uh, you know, a situation that was you know far more complex, or not complex, but uh, far you know, far larger than the one that you know faces Europe today. Um, and so, I think it's probably reasonable to say that it's not really a refugee crisis that faces Europe and, and the other Western countries. It's it's more of a moral crisis because yeah. we seem to, at the same time as celebrating our sort of values of freedom and and equality and liberty and um, all of those sort of liberal values that we sort of understand as being core to being you know, uh, the West. Um, 
at the same time as celebrating them uh, when it comes to, you know, when people come to our countries trying to um, achieve just a basic level of safety and security, we um, are able to lock them up. Um, we label them um, in terms that, you know, sort of deny them their basic humanity. Um, and, yeah, I think that's a bit of a problem. Why do you think we do that? Well, um, that, I think that's a leading question. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to what you, know, you could call the politics of fear. And I think um, while every society always has concerns about its security and its safety, um, in our society, I think security has become this kind of all-consuming you know, sort of um, priority and, and you know, tool, really, for... for um, for governments, um, in, in not just in Australia but in, in lots of countries, to um, I guess manipulate issues for their own benefit. Um, and I'm not, you know, that's I'm not sort of speaking as a conspiracy theorist. Um, you know, I think it's it's sort of well known in political science that um, you know that using fear as a as a tool to divide populations can be very effective, and that's. Um, one of the things that was, you know, really led to the breakdown in in Yugos, um, the former Yugoslavia, and the kind of um, ethnic cleansing that you know pushed the Kosovo population out of, of Kosovo um, during the time of Slobodan and Milosevic was the fact that um, he was sort of using this you know quite extremist rhetoric and and fear um, to you know to sort of gain political support and that was you know, a way that he mobilised uh, people to vote for him and to you know, um, keep, a, keep power for the time that he was in power. Um, and you know, we don't see that extremity perhaps in Australia but we do see you know, um, policies of government that appear to be you know, really about sort of promoting a, a level of anxiety in, in our society and when people are anxious um, it's very easy to focus on, you know, a particular group or one other, you know, another particular group. And so we, we sort of tend to get, um, I guess, persuaded that there's, you know... Um, this is the right thing to do. Yeah, that there's a there's a threat. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, it would be naive to say that there's, you know, never going to be any you know, kind of threats or, you know, the, the risk of um, terrorist attacks in, in one country or, you know, in Australia. But um, I think the, the response... That we have to the kind of uh, threats that we're told about is, is sort of you know really extreme, more extreme mm. than uh, potentially the actual threat is. And it doesn't take into account the, the people who aren't terrorists. Um, and that kind of leads me on to to the next question: Do you think that there is a is that there is a line where, you know, how how do you battle this this anxiety that society has, which pushes us to um, become more ex- extreme in the way we treat these people? Do you think that there is a line between taking care of our security and also showing sympathy and compassion to another person. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I think of course um, exactly where that line is is you know is is tricky, um, and I think the most important thing is that there is dialogue and and that people can have conversations. Um, there's a there's a, a great little video that um, came out last week, um, a computer animation that I saw, which you know talked about the situation in. Um, in Europe, and the fact that a million people had arrived in Europe, which sounds like a large number, but um, you know, a million 
refugees in in Europe, um, which is you know, ten million square kilometers, is not really a very large number. Okay. Um, there's a million refugees in Lebanon, um, and that's a country of only ten thousand square wow. kilometers. Yeah. Um, yeah. What was the video called? Maybe we'll share I'll, it. On I'll, I'll have to send you the link. Oh, I yeah, send me the I link. I can't remember exactly. We'll, but, we'll share it for um, you guys. But it was a you know, really uh, well sort of evidenced sort of argument um, that it was looking for alternatives to, to migration policy that didn't involve locking people up into camps and um, and treating them as you know some kind of non-human. Um, yeah. You briefly mentioned um, World War II um, before. Um, what is the difference between the attitude of our politicians today and the social attitudes and behaviours that followed after World War II? Well, I think, I mean, in the immediate sort of, you know, sort of period after World War II, I think there was a, a level of uh, common recognition amongst uh, many of the world leaders of the, of the you know, the, the Allied parties who had at least won um, the war that, you know, that... Um, there needed to be solutions to problems of, you know, sort of refugee movements and um, people's sort of, um, you know, the, the kinds of you know, humanitarian crises that are produced by war and that there had to be some kind of fundamental recognition that um, every human is entitled to uh, seek asylum and to not be returned to situations that are you know, going to endanger their life. Um, hence, we got you know, the, the sort of the 1945 Refugee Convention, which, you know, is the framework for, for legal responses to uh, refugee situations and similar situations. And um, let's not kid ourselves that, you know, you know, at the, during that period of time, all politicians and all uh, leaders were particularly nice. I mean, Australia was, was uh, had, a, had, a, had the white Australia policy until Gough Whitlam mm. um, was in power in the, in the early 70s. And um, you know, so there's there's always been that kind of, uh, sl- uh, you know, I guess slightly uh, potential for, for a ra- racist approach within Australia, which um, unfortunately has not gone away. Do you think that it was because the whole world was engaged in, in this huge war that everyone felt like they're responsible? But right now, I mean, Australia has sent troops to Syria and all that stuff, but I, th- I think, do you think that they feel that they're not responsible for the influx of refugees? Well, um, I, I, I don't know about that, but I think what shocked people after World War II is that as the, the kind of images came out of um, the, the um, concentration camps um, and the full scale of the sort of Nazi atrocities became evident, um, there was this fundamental recognition about just you know how um, you know awful humans could be to one another if you know if there weren't appropriate sort of you know frameworks to stop um, people in place and I guess you know Hitler's strength was that he was very effective at, at using fear to to sort of um, uh, make people do atrocious things to to other human beings um, and I think we would, you know, I don't think any Australian would like to, you know, consider their their sort of um, approaches in in the same vein as as the, the kind of that kind of vein. But you know, I, th- I think there's a, and obviously that you know, I'm not at all suggesting that our policies are you know anywhere near the, the scale of what went on in Germany. But um, but, it is but I think there's this, you know, this increased willingness to deny people their fundamental human humanity. Um, and to you know, for instance, to lock people up in a small, remote 
um, rock in the, mm. in the middle of the, the Pacific um, and to not give people information, um, to deny them you know, basic accountability and, and representation. So those are all very, I think, worrying trends. If we can do that to um, people in our age when, with all the knowledge that we have, then um, what are we doing? That's perfect. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for yet again. Um, we're rushing to a close on the show. Thank you so much, Daniel, for coming on the show. And I'm sure we'll get you back again um, to talk more about this because it seems like you just have so much information you have to share. Um, on, on that note, um, I'd like to share a quote with you. Um, and this is from one of my f favorite um, people. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Sophie Scholl. But um, she was a young German student who stood up for um, the Jews when all this stuff was going on, um, even though the whole country was happy to keep quiet and let it happen. Um, and they executed her. Um, and she was only, I think, 20, 21 years old. Um, and this is a fantastic quote from her. How can we expect righteousness to prevail when there is hardly anyone willing to give himself up ind individually to a righteous cause? Such a fine sunny day and I have to go, but what does my death matter if through us thousands of people are awakened and stirred to action? Um, and that was Sophie Scholl. Um, we're going to go out now to a track called Sail a Mile in My Shoes. Thank you so much for listening. Please stay tuned for the Latin American update. This is Refugee Radio on 3CR 855 AM. <laughs>